the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon and welcome. It's a wet, rainy Wednesday for the 16th of January, and good to have you on board with us today. We say on board because you may be floating your way home today. We've got Michael Bennett standing by in the KFAX Traffic Center. Keep us on top of what's happening, not only weather-wise, but the potential commute impact. A lot of it so far, from what I've been seeing from the wire service, seems to be concentrated to the north of us. So it's more of an issue if you're listening to the KFAX signal up in Santa Rosa, Petaluma, some of the fire zone up there. Um, Certainly want to be aware of potential flash flood warnings. This broadcast could be interrupted anytime by an emergency alert system uh, notification. So um, keep your dial set right where it is. We'll keep you company. We'll also keep you abreast of what's going on traffic and weather-wise throughout our program this evening. Got a pretty involved agenda for you. Coming up a little bit later on in this first hour, Congressman Tom McClintock will join us live from Washington, D.C., day number 25, soon to be uh, in about, what, uh, six, seven hours here, day 26 of the shutdown. No sign in sight of any motion. And one of the big concerns is not just when it's all going to get back into uh, business again, but... Once it does, with a deeply divided Congress, could it even be a more severe stalemate than we saw during the course of the 115th Congress? There has been this issue of cloture, and we're going to have Tom McClintock explain a bit about what it is and why it has essentially um, created a, a hamstring on the ability of Republicans to get legislative pieces move through. For example, did you know that over the course of the last two years, House Republicans sent the Republican Senate over 1,300 bills, and they acted on fewer than 300? Because of this rule, we're going to talk about how it could even exacerbate the next two years even further. Tom McClintock later on in this hour. Hour number two tonight, Tim Winter joins us, president of the Parents Television Council. We're talking about the uh, entertainment industry in 2019. You probably are aware that Disney's going to be launching uh, shortly its own online on-demand service, similar to Netflix at all. But the question keeps coming back to the amount of violence on television and the impact on children and why the industry steadfastly refuses to do anything about it. Our conversation with Tim Winter later on in our Number two. All right, let's get down to cases, shall we? The Brown administration, finally over with. Longest governor in California history. Four terms, 16 years. That's because the term limits for the position were passed after he finished his first two terms in office. And there was a lot of crazy things that Jerry Brown said and did few things that will continue to impact us, maybe for years to come, maybe for decades to come, like the uh, high-speed train debacle to Southern California, which uh, last estimate was up towards $100 billion. That's the entire state budget for a year. Unbelievable. And, of course, no end to all of that in sight. But now that Governor Gavin Newsom is in office, I think we're going to see in some arenas a ratcheting up of some of the craziness. Look, for example, at the current housing crisis in all of California. And uh, while there's been a lot of bemoaning of what's happening to the crunch on the middle class and lower class individuals who just simply can't afford anymore to live in the region we call home, some of the creative ways in which the governor is suggesting we resolve these problems might create even bigger problems. Some insights now as we're joined by Senior Fellow Pepperdine School of Public Policy, Dean of the School of Public Policy there at Pepperdine, Pete Peterson. Pete, Happy New Year to you. Welcome. 
And to you, Craig. Great to be with you. Wow, wow, wow. So it's uh, it's now Governor Gavin Newsom. And uh, with all of this, of course, a lot of creative uh, energy and ideas that are coming out of the, the governor's office. Now, one that I want to spend some time talking about, and it's one that inevitably, when discussions around the water cooler, around the dinner table, uh, focus on the cost of living in California, and inevitably the issue of housing comes up. There's some creative ideas out there to try and address this problem. Some of it, unfortunately, though, seems to, from what I've been reading, open up the possibility, a very strong and wide door, to um, a, a blending of public and private money with what I can only imagine to be a tremendous amount of uh, temptation on both sides for nefarious activities. Talk to us a bit about your understanding of the governor's recommendation here that essentially what, I guess as I read it, California businesses, corporate, corporate America here in California is suddenly going to go into the home lending business? Yeah, you know, there are a number, number of different parts to it, Craig, and uh, I think really the, the major theme and the major tension point we need to look at is at what level is the state going to get involved, either through incentives or direct regulation, uh, local housing planning decisions. As we all know, your listeners know, the vast majority of decisions around how many houses, uh, units, whether rental or or not, whether they're apartments or houses, uh, those are really determined at the local level through local planning boards, commissions, and uh, planning staff. And I think it's fair to say that it's been a tension uh, statewide uh, for a long time that how the building of housing is at root uh, and the cost of housing has been a supply and demand set of problems. Now, Layered on top of that are a set of uh, environmental regulations, uh, things like CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, that have also made it very difficult and very expensive uh, to build houses. So I think what the governor is, is trying to weigh and balance are uh, at what level these decisions are going to be made. And I think he's certainly talking about carrots and sticks to try to increase the supply of housing uh, across the state, but particularly in these uh, very expensive regions like where you are and your listeners, obviously, where I am down here in the Los Angeles area, um, just it's, it's prohibitively expensive for anyone on a middle-class income uh, to live. You know, and of course, we all immediately agree to that. Unless you're in the very heavy six figures, I'm talking 250k north, uh, you probably don't feel much of the pinch. And for the rest of us, it's like every time we we turn around, it's it's a major ouch between property taxes, um, certainly California state income taxes, and and just mm-hmm. hey, if you want to sell your house and move somewhere else because you like the weather differently, or you want to be close to the kids or grandkids, you better have uh, you know an all a huge ton of money hidden. Under underneath a, a, you know, the rainbow in a pot of gold somewhere. What I think I find troubling about part of this is not only this, this creative with potential for abuse blend between public dollars and private dollars, but also I have to wonder, and, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to be very clear here, uh, Pete, I'm not trying to by any means um, dismiss the pain that middle-class Californians feel economically, particularly when it comes to housing. But I have to wonder, even with this recommendation or proposal by the governor, uh, it still is calling upon very limited resources. And I have to wonder, okay, we're going to do something to help the middle class. That's good. But we have a burgeoning lower class here in this Mm -hmm. state and a homeless problem, the likes of which we have never seen before over... Over 100,000 people across the state have no place to permanently call home, and that number continues to grow. Is the money here potentially being misdirected? Well, I think it's entirely possible, because I I, I do think, Craig, that one of the greatest challenges we've had around housing policy is understanding the difference between making housing affordable and something called affordable housing. Uh, the, The designs around affordable housing... I hate to say those, those many of these programs fail. Uh, I just think about where I am in Santa Monica. 
the the waiting list is years to get into a so-called affordable housing unit and if you're in a place if you have a policy that it takes years to qualify for then you don't really have a policy you have a dream and so i think the understanding of of making more housing affordable goes right to economics 101 and that is uh, are we building enough supply to keep up with demand and we are not now there are reasons particularly on the left as it relates to environmental regulation why uh, we are not building as much housing as we can. Uh, but I think you're right to put your finger on the possibilities for things like crony capitalism when we're looking at uh, some public-private partnerships and certainly some public monies that are being put into something meant to be affordable housing, but it's really not sufficient. It's really a drop in the bucket. Uh, to the, the the greater scale and challenge that we have here. Well, and there's also a sense of, I think, some potential short-sightedness here, and we can dive into this a little bit deeper after the break. Short-sightedness in the sense that communities get eager when corporate America wants to move in. I, I doubt that there's been many no votes, for example, at the Planning Commission or the uh, City Council for Menlo Park, as Facebook has said, hey, we need a bigger campus, an even bigger campus. There's a section here off of the Dumbarton Bridge that you just might as well call it's Facebook mm-hmm. and nothing else, and it goes on for <laughs> blocks and blocks and blocks. And I know they're rubbing their hands together and saying, wow, look at all of this tax revenue, look at these jobs, we're going to build all these new homes. And yet the last time I checked, God was not making any more of the commodity we call dirt. And so that means we're adding greater levels of density. We also have a challenge in terms of, well, they're not doubling the size of the freeway. They may be doubling the size of of housing units, but they're not doubling the size of the freeway. We're not doubling the number of schools. We're doing nothing to address the, the stress on infrastructure such as water and sewers and electrical. So I'm wondering if, too, part of this eagerness to accommodate the burgeoning high tech industry uh, in Silicon Valley and other parts of the state, yours included, is is not potentially a bit short-sighted on the complexity of the layers of issues here. It's not just, hey, here's some blank real estate or here's an old building, let's tear it down, put up a new high-rise, and we're good to go. There's a lot more to it than that. If you've just joined us, we're talking with the dean of public policy at Pepperdine School of Public Policy, uh, Pete Peterson, and uh, dealing with um, some very important issues here. One of the things, too, that we'll have Pete uh, address when we come back after the break, and that is whether or not, with some of the potential short-sightedness here, if we're not really, really careful, could we be building in California today the Detroit of tomorrow? And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. Right now, though, let's get a look at traffic. Wet, rainy, potentially dangerous roads. Ouch, see there? I told you to be careful. Let's see what's going on. Oh, boy, you, you looked up in the rearview mirror fast on that one, didn't you? Not to worry. Everything is okay. Michael Bennett's here with the news. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our visit with Pete Peterson. He, of course, dean of the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy. And, boy, talk about a hot public policy issue, and that is job growth, new construction, housing, and uh, what certainly has been a burgeoning industry, the high-tech and uh, uh, computing industry here in Northern California in particular, and the the fight, really, the struggle for communities to try to keep up with demand, and, and just quite frankly, you know, <laughs> build it and they shall come, and if you live in the Bay Area, you see license plates from all over the country that are suddenly showing up here. And of course, all these people, in addition to taking the jobs, are also looking for places to live and schools to send their children to. But our our leaders, are those engaged in um, community planning, is there even time, I have to wonder, Pete, to plan in advance? I mean, when, when you're approached by Apple and Apple says, I've got some great news for you, uh, Cupertino. We're going to build a multi-billion dollar facility here. We're going to employ tens of thousands of people. Um, I would imagine there's not a lot of time to sit down for the city fathers and say, well, do we have the power to support this? Do we have the schools to support this? Do we have the all of the roads, all of the infrastructure necessary? 
necessary. So they build it, they come, and then we're kind of left with a big mess afterwards. Well, I'd say I, I know a fair number of uh, municipal planners. Uh, in fact, we prepare some of them here at the policy school. Those that that level, that scale and scope, say of the the Apple headquarter construction. I mean that that certainly was something that had been on the books in planning and development for at least a decade. And so I would guess that there had been a number of conversations between the city and Apple. Now, to your point about saying, well, did anybody? Uh, raise significant questions about the infrastructure, both in uh, roads and bridges and so on, uh, or as we think about schools and support of those who are would be moving into the area. Um, I think that's unfortunately usually the last question that anybody seeks confirmation on. And uh, oftentimes the the expected tax revenues are rarely, are not always, I should say, uh, uh, spent wisely to support uh, where the funding is coming from. And so uh, I, I do think that most of these major projects do find uh, a connection and planning with the city, but then how the, the, the expected revenues, how they're spent, is, uh, can be another matter. Let me ask you the tough question. I alluded to this just before the break. Um, Detroit, boy, if anybody wants to take the time to really get a shock, Google what's left of Detroit or phraseology of, of, of that sort and look at what's posted. There was a time certainly uh, about a century ago with the, the birth of uh, uh, mobilization called the automobile here in America that Detroit over a period of time in the late teens, 1920s, 30s, and up to and through the war, had really become both a industrial and cultural gem. Uh, they had beautiful buildings, wonderful symphonies. Um, I mean, it, it was a sight to behold. Fast forward now to 2019, and Detroit today is a shadow of its former self. At one time, the peak population, over 2 million inhabitants, two-thirds of that have all fled as the automotive industry just disappeared, moved elsewhere, uh, competition from foreign manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera. When you, when you talk about long-term planning, when you talk about public policy, do, do thoughts ever, do the conversation, Pete, ever turn toward, well, gee, you know, we're excited about the presence of Facebook and Google and Apple and eBay, et cetera, et cetera, today. But what happens if they ever decide to pull out a Dodge? What could happen to a region like the San Francisco Bay Area? Today, you know, the median uh, cost of a home is uh, north of uh, $1.2 million dollars. Mm-hmm. Just one or two of these companies disappearing could cause the Bay Area to start to head in the same direction as Detroit is today, don't you think? Well, I, I think that certainly could be a concern. I, I would say that the Bay Area economy is is quite a bit more diversified. I, agreed. Than, than I absolutely Detroit agreed. Um, but but I, I think actually you're raising a, an extremely important point, uh, which is to say um, I don't think we necessarily – uh, while we're, we all, always should be concerned about the future, I think actually the, the, the problems inherent in the economy as it stands today are the issues we're seeing today. So, the, you know, you raised the point about homelessness before and, and the cost of living there, and we're certainly seeing some of that here in the Los Angeles area. I live in Santa Monica. It is impossible for anyone to buy a house there. And at the same time, we're looking at these other layers of taxes and expenses just today with the economy so-called doing with, you know, this uh, California comeback and everything's doing well. Well, if there's one thing I agree with uh, the outgoing Governor Brown about, as he often said, as I heard him say in my presence, we're seven years into a five-year recessionary cycle. Mm. And I, 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 one thing I'm extremely concerned about is not really where we're going in 10 or 15 years, but where are we going to be in the next couple of years if we just get into a cyclical uh, and rather expected recession? Well, and, and, and that that think... certainly made even more complex by uh, California's out-of-control taxation scenario. Exactly right. And, and again, 
uh, as you as you just alluded to, Craig, we are so top heavy, both in capital gains and higher income income taxes. I, I wrote a piece for this in Real Clear Policy that this is where Bernie Nomics goes to die is in California <laughs> yeah, yeah. because we've gotten so top heavy that we are we are really unprepared for withstanding a major recession. And so my eyes go much more into where we are now as it relates to issues of affordability and homelessness and where we are go where we're looking at just in the next couple of years with what I think most all economists would say is an expected recession of, of some scale. And let me uh, let me address the uh, the elephant in the room, and that is you mentioned the potentiality, and these things are cyclical, so the potentiality of a, um, a recession, we're one day closer to it. Whenever it happens, today makes us one day closer, tomorrow a day even closer to that. But then what if something happens that is unanticipated? We've just seen this uh, debate here over the last 24 hours regarding uh, PG&E and um, bankruptcy. And a lot of it to largely be able to come out from underneath this landslide of lawsuits related to the fires that you and I talked about quite quite extensively here in um, August and September, October of last year, and the, the potential impact on that. Now, what if California faces a major earthquake that could cost the state billions of dollars? I mean, this, this, could, this could literally, you know, I won't say shut us down, but certainly could cripple our state for a long time to come. And sadly, when you add the tax burden, I just read today that the, the governor now is recommending that uh, in order to address the water shortage situation here in California, uh, that, you know, let's, let's increase taxes on water. This is after we passed a very uh, extensive multi-billion dollar bond measure in the last couple of years to address, you guessed it, water shortages. So I, I look at not just the, the tax infrastructure of California, but the looming potential of any kind of a natural disaster, be it earthquake, fire, or whatever, and we are one disaster away from disaster. I wish I could disagree, Craig. I mean, of course, we, we hope and pray against such things, but I, I have to say that uh, we are in an era here in the state where we've, we've uh, gotten over our ski tips. Mm. Uh, both in spending and, and the taxation that's intended to support the spending. And um, and I'm not optimistic, frankly, over these next couple of years, even if the economy stays somewhat copacetic, uh, the, the state legislature in Sacramento remains the most progressive political organization in the, in the country. And I don't know if, uh, if now Governor Newsom is the person to uh, to rein in the purse strings, and I, I, I just do have serious concerns uh, of of where we're at as a state in spending over these next. Uh next couple of years. Yeah, the, the irony in remembering a lot of the 16 years of Jerry Brown, um, while there was a lot that he said and did that I thoroughly disagreed with, there was also a sense that he could be the brakes on the California state legislature and, in fact, vetoed a number of bills, some crazy stuff that they passed uh, late in the legislative uh, year last year, hoping that this would be kind of, you know, well, one of the final documents he'll sign. And fortunately, he refused to do so and vetoed a number of measures with a sort of in Harmony in lockstep, progressive legislature and progressive governor. Boy, that could really uh, create a, a, a bit of a sticky wicket for the, the state of California. Pete, let me ask you this. These kinds of issues and questions, we as Californians, while we might find uncomfortable in discussing and 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 it tends to raise uh, you know raise differences of opinion and raise tempers etc cetera, etc cetera. they are nevertheless issues that we have to grapple with we have to address and and understanding the pivotal role that public policy plays in all of this, from infrastructure to taxation and how we not only how we raise our tax dollars, but how we spend them, and uh, the role of corporate America in the health of California. These are all issues of a public policy nature, and you really are preparing the next generation of those that will be governors and members of the legislature and uh, those involved in public planning and city councils and all of that for roles in public policy. For folks that find this fascinating and want to know more, tell us just briefly a bit about um, what's offered there at the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy. Yes, thanks, Craig. It's a unique two-year master's in public policy program, and I say unique in the sense that 
uh, we take a certain uh, conservative perspective on public policy, both domestic and international. Uh, we do prepare students with what we call a, a one-degree, five-specialization curriculum. And as you said, we, we send our graduates, we've got over 100 alum, 800 alums now of the program, uh, everywhere from Sacramento to D.C., all over the world, and including local governments, uh, taking a perspective that's very much grounded in our founding principles, uh, the support of free markets, and also the understanding of America's exceptional nature. And so it's what gets me up in the morning is, is to know that we're sending students and supporting our alums that are in places of influence. And I'm always looking out for uh, great uh, kids, especially those of faith, that want to make a difference in the public square. And uh, again, that's a it's a great part of my job that we get to prepare these leaders uh, for the future. And uh, as you say, uh, helping to prepare them is what gets you up in the morning and knowing that there are um, young people that are learning not just how all of this works, but the principles, the, the historic foundational principles of our nation um, to, to help guide them as they become the future leaders of America. That's what allows the rest of us to sleep well at night. So it gets you up in the morning, lets the rest of us sleep well when we head off to bed at night. If you or maybe someone you know would really be ideally tailored to, to learn in this kind of an environment and, and to literally um, be able to take on the mantle of helping guide our nation into the future and becoming a public policy expert in all of these arenas that we've we've touched on and many more. Uh, maybe it's worth some time to explore what's offered at Pepperdine University. Uh, it's a gem here in California. Uh, literally, you're about four-hour drive from the Bay Area down there. So for parents listening, you want to keep the kids close to home as they go to school, what a joy to know that it's there. There's also some distance learning programs available through the Internet, and you can get more information about all of the course offerings and what Pepperdine University offers here to Californians by simply going online to pepperdine.edu. That's pepperdine.edu. And uh, knowing that there's folks like Pete Peterson there and uh, the course offerings uh, hopefully will help all of us sleep a little bit better at night. 5.35 on the clock with our thanks to Pete Peterson, Dean of the Pepperdine University School of Public Policy. Let's talk to the Dean of Traffic, if there is such a thing. <laughs> Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, thank you, sir. Welcome back to the conversation. Don't forget... Congressman Tom McClintock is going to join us live from Washington, D.C. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll talk a bit about the shutdown. We'll also talk about the future of the 116th Congress, so deeply divided, and what all that potentially means for you and me. Tom McClintock coming up a little bit later on in this edition of Lifeline. What a joy. I remember, in fact, sitting in this very studio about 15 years ago uh, with my next guest, and we were talking about this idea that she had, the vision, um, to, um, to bring pro-life people together here in the San Francisco Bay Area and to make a statement, uh, to, to essentially say, hey, we here too, there is a remnant in the San Francisco Bay Area that values life. So was birthed Walk for Life West Coast, and it is now in its 15th year, taking place on Saturday, January the 26th, we'll tell you more about that in a moment. Meanwhile, here is the co-founder and organizer of Walk for Life West Coast, Eva Montaigne. Eva, welcome to the program. Could you ever imagine, 15 years ago, this would become the largest pro-life walk in the country? Wow. Well, okay. I have to. I have to correct that. We're number two. Number two. Okay. Yeah, number two. We try harder. <laughs> <laughs> we're the largest in the West Coast, that's for sure, and we're the second largest in the country. So we can we can save those two things. But March for Life gets you know a hundred thousand people. So. Uh, we're halfway there, though. We're, we're working on it. We're going to get there. <laughs> well, second, second behind D.C., we'll, we'll take that. That's okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, th this, as we say, has grown into become an amazing event. It's both an educational tool, an outreach tool, as well as an opportunity just for fellow pro-lifers to be able to get together on a weekend and say, hey, you know, we're not alone in all of this, and in many respects to celebrate 
many of the important strides, the many great leaps forward, so to speak, uh, that we've experienced uh, down through the last 15 years. This year's event, of course, will be no different. I mentioned about that. It'll be on Saturday, January the 26th in San Francisco. Tell us what all will be happening. Okay, well, um, we actually have lots of different events around the walk, but for the actual walk itself, we start um, with, for the uh, Catholic people, we start with Mass at 9.30, and then after that, our um, rally and event starts at 10.45 at Civic Center Plaza. It starts with a smaller event, uh, Silent No More. The women who have been hurt by abortion will be giving their testimonies. They give that on a side stage off of our main stage. And then we also have an info fair set up where we have 50 uh, groups and organizations who hand out their material to people so that they people know what all the services are in the area. And then our event, the big event, starts at 12.30, and we have an hour's worth of speakers, and we have some great speakers this year. And then we start walking at 1.30, and we walk from... Civic Center Plaza, down Market Street, over to Embarcadero Plaza, down on the waterfront. So it's actually quite a beautiful walk, and it's quite a beautiful day. It's supposed to be nice and sunny, so um, so come on out and join us. <laughs> Absolutely, and then we'll be praying for great uh, weather on that date. And I'll, I'll mention to listeners again, this is going to be taking place Saturday, January the 26th, and you can get complete details online at WalkForLifeWC. Think of West Coast, WalkForLifeWC.com. You have some spectacular speakers this year, Eva. In fact, uh, about a week ago, we had a chance to spend some time visiting with uh, Patty Sandoval. Wow, what a story she has. Oh, my goodness. We're so excited to have her. And we're excited because we have her, who is an ex-Planned Parenthood employee, uh, who has had three abortions. And she's going to be joined by Abby Johnson, an ex-Planned Parenthood employee, who's also had an abortion. So we're, uh, it's going to be a very exciting to have the two of them. And what's even more amazing is that both of them are pregnant. Oh, no so kidding. Gonna, <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. You they're know, uh, pa- Patty, bumps. Patty kept that little detail under wraps when she was on the phone with us. But that's that's good to hear. Wow. Yes, it's her first baby. Uh, well, her first baby that's going to come to term. And she's very excited, and, and, and we're very excited because just uh, just the, the visual of that. Can you imagine both of them pregnant, both of them talking about babies? That um, That's what we're all about, you know, so it's, it's very exciting. Good stuff. Well, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that, and uh, Patty promised to drop by again so we can spend more time visiting on the program, and we'll, uh, we'll certainly have a chance to do that. Meanwhile, for listeners that heard Patty on the air, know a bit about her story. Uh, she, along with Abby Johnson, boy, talk about a fantastic one-two punch, so to speak, in, in addressing these issues and encouraging many that will be there, thousands in attendance. The annual Walk for Life West Coast, Saturday, January the 26th, rain or shine, we're praying for lots of shine, and you can get details about the walk online at walkforlifewc.com. That's walkforlifewc.com. And Ava Montaigne, co-founder of Walk for Life West Coast, thanks so much for being with us, and thanks for that update. We'll be talking more about this, of course, in the coming days and weeks. Do we have the congressman uh, on hold, Jarrell? Let's tell you what. I know that they're not that busy in Washington, D.C., but this is one guy who is. So let's just transition. We'll get to traffic in a moment. You're stuck in it. You know what's there. So <laughs> we'll tell you more about that in a moment. Right now, though, let me say good evening to Congressman Tom McClintock, representing the great state of California from the 4th District. And, uh, Tom, a very happy new year to you. Well, happy new year to you, Craig. Thanks for having me back. Great to have you with us. Uh, you know, let's talk a bit first about the environment there. So we're here, day number 25, in about six hours and 15 minutes, we'll cross over to day number six, 26 of the shutdown. What's within Congress? What's the atmosphere like right now? Oh, it's very frustrating. Uh, the, the whole process of Congress is, is based on deliberation, on talking to each other, on negotiating, on meeting together. Uh, and the president has been trying to do that. He has put one proposal after another on the table. He has invited the Democrats to 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 come to to, to negotiate with him. He just issued a uh, an invitation of, uh, uh, to a number of the freshman Democrats. Just come over to the White House and let's talk about this. 
and they refused. Mm. The President of the United States asked sitting members of Congress to come to discuss the issues that are confronting us, and they refuse. The system cannot function like this. Uh, it, it, it's simply not designed to function when people won't talk to each other. You know, and that's the, what's going on. And the irony, of course, is historically, if, if there's been an impasse, uh, you know, the debate is not underway on the floor of the House or the Senate, there was always sort of the, the relief valve by the opportunity of leadership to come together. Uh, I know certainly you do this during the reconciliation process as you work through budget questions and so forth. The fact that the leadership of the House, the leadership of the Senate, and the leadership of the executive branch can't sit down in a room and say, guess what, guys? We're, we're bringing in food, and we're just going to stay here till midnight if we have to and see if we can come up with some sort of a solution here, at the very least for the sake of the American people, and yet no go so far. Well, of course, they can do that. The problem is the Democrats will not yeah. do that. Yeah. And, and that's what I just I, I do not understand. That's why you would think that is why they came to Congress to talk these things out. That's all we do around here. We talk things out, and, and, uh, and they won't. And, and at the same time, we're, we're facing an increasingly serious situation at the border. Of course, the, uh, the, 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 we've got one quarter of the government that is not funded at this moment. Uh, and all it is, you point out, all it takes is to come into the same room and talk each other until we've resolved our differences. That's what we've done for 240 years until now. The irony is Democrats can't be surprised about this. I mean, it's not as if the president tried to keep the notion of border security a secret during the, the campaign or over the course of, of uh, his last two years now in office. So the fact that they're not willing to come together and sit down and, and at least do some kind of an offering compromise, but it, it just seems as if they're trying to make a political point on this. I have to wonder, though, is this is going to be a case where the first party who blinks loses in two years well you know this this is a, a, a test of will but it's it's ultimately not a test between the president and the congress or, or between the republicans and the democrats for that matter this is a test of whether the american people can still summon the resolve to enforce their laws secure their borders protect their communities and defend their sovereignty this i think has become a turning point in one of the most critical questions of our age Will we take back control of our borders, uh, or will we uh, let, let them dissolve? And if we're not going to enforce our immigration laws, and if we're not going to enforce our borders, then we cease to become a country, because borders are what define a country, and we simply become this vast uh, international open territory between Canada and Mexico, both of which, by the way, have immigration laws and borders that they actually enforce. Yeah, we would we would turn the entire country into the wild, wild west of the 1800s all over again with no rule of law, no regulations, just, you know, uh, whoever's got the bigger gun wins. I want you to educate us on something, Tom, because you, you bring some, I think, for the benefit of listeners here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, some unique perspective. And I want everybody, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, listening right now to pay close attention to this. One of the things that we have been hearing over the last 25 days and, and, and virtually ad nauseum, Tom, has been this. Well, you know, the Republicans had control of the Senate. They had control of the House. They've had control of the White House. And they didn't get any bill passed in the last two years. So it really is the fault of the 115th Congress and Republicans for not passing some sort of immigration and border security legislation. Now, on the surface, that sounds like, well, yeah, gosh, you know, they're absolutely right. They did have control of, of uh, all of Congress and the executive branch. Why didn't they get something done? And there is a very important technical answer to this question when it comes to rules inside of the Senate that helps us better understand. Educate us on that. Well, I mean, first of all, that's, a, that's an absolutely fair uh, question. Uh, the, 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 the voters in 2016 asked us to simply make America great again. And as a practical matter, that, that meant reviving the economy and balancing the budget and rescuing our health care system. And most importantly, it meant securing our borders to protect our communities and to protect our people. And they gave the Republicans all of the necessary tools, majorities in both houses of Congress and the White House. Um, but what happened it can be summed up in a single word, closure. Uh, and that's, that's the Senate rule that requires 60 votes before a bill can even be considered. 
it, it was originally designed to, to protect the minority's right to debate. Unfortunately, over the past 30 years or so, it's degenerated into a very effective way for the minority to prevent any debate. Um, so the, the, the president delivered on his promises as far as his constitutional powers have allowed him to do. House Republicans delivered on our promises. House Republicans sent the Senate over 1,300 bills during the last two years, fulfilling every promise we made to the American people. But the Senate acted on fewer than 300 of those 1,300 bills. You know, they, they, they brag about being the greatest deliberative body in the world. That has become an absurdity. The greatest deliberative body in the world never took up those bills for a moment of deliberation because of a lack of closure. And I don't fault uh, uh, Chuck Schumer and the Democrats for, for, for radically abusing this rule. I blame the Senate Republicans who let them abuse it by by stubbornly ref, refusing to reform this rule. And and if you look at any of the accomplishments we have had, the appointments of Neil Gorsuch and Brett uh, uh, Kavanaugh, for example, that came when the Senate went around the closure rule, but they were only willing to do that for Supreme Court to nominees. Hmm. The tax cuts... We got through by going around the closure rule by using a, a once-a-year bill that's supposed to be designed to control spending. It's called reconciliation. Uh, closure stopped all of the major progress to, to, to fulfill the promises we made to the American people, and it destroyed the 115th Congress. And the real irony is, because of the weird demographics of the Senate, Senate Republicans actually gained seats. All of voter frustration was taken out on, on the House, where we lost the majority, and have now lost the ability to enact that agenda that the American people gave to us back in 2016. You know, it's interesting. When I, I saw your remarks on this, and I read the 1,300 bills, I thought, well, that must be a typo. And then I looked it up and found out, no, that's actually accurate. 1,300 yeah. bills that were sent by House Republicans over to the Senate for consideration, and the Senate acted on fewer than 300. All of this is pivoting on not some arcane major regulation that's buried deep in the United States Constitution that has everybody hamstrung and, and, and their arms tied behind their back, but in fact a rule that the Senate has every right and ability to modify if it's so desired. And it almost sounds as if this has been manipulated in order to, dependent upon who's in control, help to essentially nullify the efforts of the majority party. And it destroys the effectiveness of the Senate, of whoever course. is in charge, because it gives the minority the ability to block any legislation. And and the Democrats have, have used that, uh, certainly to a radical extent. But, again, that's not their fault. That's the fault of the Senate Republicans who let them. And, again, this, this rule was never designed to be this way. This is, par this is an ancient parliamentary principle that if a minority wants to continue a debate, the debate ought to continue. Uh, 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 and that, that's what closure started as. Uh, but that assumes it's a real debate among real people talking about the issues at hand. What has degenerated in the Senate in the last 30 years is it no longer applies to, to continuing a debate. You've got to get 60 votes before you can even begin a debate. And, and that has caused the Senate to, to atrophy. And since the Senate cannot act, the Congress cannot act. And, and that's becoming a critical problem, whoever's in charge in the future. And I think if, if the American people fully understood the implications of this, that, that most Americans would come absolutely unglued to realize that not just the Senate, but the entirety of government in Washington, D.C., essentially gets held hostage. You know, we've often said, look, at the end of the day, there may be disagreements, but at least in disagreements, let's engage in some debate. Let's have an up-down vote. Uh, we, you and I have talked about this as we, we walked through, uh, you know, appointees to the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. At least let's have an opportunity to have a discussion. They went around the rule in order to get Gorsuch and Kavanaugh passed. My, my question, I guess, Tom, is, is there nothing that the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, can do to force this thing to some kind of well, an he, agreement yes, with modification? Years, he could have. He chose not to. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and that I hold him entirely accountable for. And you, you mentioned all the problems we're having right now, the, the, the record uh, government shutdown, the, uh, uh, the lack of funding for a border wall. The House sent the Senate a bill that fully funded the government and fully funded the border wall. And a majority of the Senate 
was in support of that. But because of that closure rule, the minority was able to block it. The Senate Democrats were given the power to run out the clock toward a government shutdown, and that is what has produced the impasse that's paralyzing one-fourth of the government right now, uh, and that threatens our ability to ever get back control of our borders. And, you know, when the Democrats say, oh, well, we really like border security, we just don't like a wall, look at what they actually have done. Of, of the, 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 the Democrats have uh, 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 done everything they can to reward those who uh, 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 violate our laws, who illegally emigrate. Uh, uh, they have uh, supported everything from uh, free education, free legal uh, uh, assistance, free uh, uh, health care, all paid for by American taxpayers to people who are uh, uh, able to to. Uh, 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 violate our borders. Uh, you, you, you can't say you're against illegal immigration while you're rewarding the very people of, uh, who are illegally immigrating. And, and certainly, you know, to the degree to which this ongoing stalemate with no end in sight, uh, you know, c- continues to be there, it, it, there's a degree to which it gives aid and comfort to our enemies because they think, well, you know, America is distracted by this. So we're not dealing with China. We're not dealing with North Korea. We're not dealing with so many other uh, external issues that are potential threats to us, including a lot of the saber rattling going on by uh, communist China and Taiwan toward Taiwan right now because we're focused on this. And meanwhile, this whole thing is shut down because of the inability to get 60 full votes because of this closure rule. Well, what does it matter if we, if we defend Taiwan's borders while we allow our own to be violated by 22 million people who are now illegally in this country, costing American taxpayers more than $100 billion a year? You know, with 60,000 more illegally crossing our southern border every month. And by the way, that's an 86% increase over last year. The only good news I can offer is there is a law on the books that authorizes the president to reprogram uh, already appropriated funds uh, for, uh, that, aren't, uh, that have not yet been in contracts for military construction. He can divert those with this uh, declaration of emergency to the defense of the nation. And I can't imagine anything that is more central to national defense than the integrity of our borders. Why do you think he hasn't pulled the trigger on that yet? Uh, that I, I, I think that is going to be plan B. Uh, and, and I would certainly uh, urge him to, to, to do so. I mean, there are some Republicans who are opposed to that. They argue that, well, the money to secure our southern border would necessarily come out of other Defense Department projects. But I think it's an odd logic, as I said, that argues that the defense of the Taiwan border or the Iraqi border is more important than the defense of our own border. And there are others who say, well, that, that's going to provoke a protracted legal challenge. Well, that's true of any course the president could take. Absolutely. And in the meanwhile, you know, the one thing, and I've reminded listeners about this, uh, if you look at the totality of the annual budget of the United States, $5 billion is chump change. It's, it's pocket change. Well, compare that. That's, that's, that's a $5 billion one-time expenditure for, for the uh, border wall compared to a, more than $100 billion a year that taxpayers have to shell out every year to support uh, the illegal population living in, in, in the country. And that doesn't begin to, to, to account for the 1,800 Americans who were murdered last year by illegal aliens, the 48,000 Americans who were violently assaulted by illegal aliens, and realize not one of these crimes would have occurred uh, uh, if we'd been enforcing our laws, because not one of those cr- criminals should have been in this country to begin with. Tom, I want to be respectful of your time here. It's late back in Washington, but I've got a I've got a difficult question that I that I know is maybe an unfair one to ask. But just based on your years of experience in Congress, if, if you had to if you had to give up an answer, do you, do you have a sense as to who might blink first here in this stalemate? Well, I know the president well enough to <laughs> be pretty confident in predicting he won't. That's probably and, not going to happen there, yeah. <laughs> and, and he does have options available. So uh, if, if – if, this, this impasse can't go on much longer. The president cannot unilaterally appropriate funds for the wall, but he does have the statutory authority to reprogram military construction funds – uh, for this purpose, uh, and, and I, I believe he should. Now, there, there's some that will say, well, that's a terrible precedent. Well, 
the left isn't going to stand on precedent the next time they want to invent a law. This is a law that's actually on the books. And to those who say, well, it might not be constitutional, well, there's one way to find out if it's constitutional, and that's to, to, to use it and let the court settle that question. But while the law is on the books, the president has the authority to defend our country and its borders by reprogramming those military construction funds. And I would argue he has an obligation to use it, particularly when he consider the fact, you know, the, the caravan that he stopped in Tijuana just attacked our border patrol officers on New Year's Day, and now we have a much larger force that's on its way north with the clear and express intention uh, to, to violate uh, our borders and, and, and to enter this country illegally. Enough is enough, and I think the president realizes that, and I doubt he's going to blink on it. Anyway. He, he, he might change his tactics slightly, but I don't think he's going to uh, 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 abandon uh, uh, his responsibility to, to defend our country, and um, that's what we elected him to do. Tom, I know it must be very frustrating for a get-the-job-done guy like you to see this stalemate and essentially, you know, the, the Congress you know, brought to a standstill. Uh, let, let's hope that uh, the level heads prevail here and we can see some action moving forward. And, you know, now is a good time. Uh, and I realize that, you know, you might have the sense it falls on deaf ears if you want to be uh, lobbying people like Dianne Feinstein and Camilla Harris, our senators from California. But, but maybe a little email or a letter when you have a, a quiet moment uh, saying we need some we need some serious revision to the cloture rule uh, in order to stop this kind of of of, of uh, paralyzing of government. I'll tell you where, where a lot of pressure needs to be brought, and that is the newly elected Democratic members of the Congress who who who, who promised their constituents that they would they would uh, uh, work uh, together for the good of our country. Those uh, Democrats who were invited to the White House and refused to even talk to the President of the United States to do do the very job they were elected to do. I think they've got some explaining to do to their constituents, and I think their constituents need to start raising that issue very vocally. Good place to start, I think, is at the top. Nancy Pelosi, and if you want to reach out to her, you can do so by calling area code 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. And just let Nancy Pelosi know what you think, but be nice about it, would you? Our thanks to Congressman Tom McClintock. And uh, Tom, as always, it's uh, an education and a privilege to have you join us here on the program. Keep up the work. I know it's frustrating, but uh, glad to know that we've got at least a few level heads like yourself working for Californians and, and all Americans, for that matter, in Washington, D.C., even when, quite frankly, half of Congress isn't. All right, there's California Congressman Tom McClintock. 603, let's get caught up on some traffic here, shall we? Got the latest for you with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. And Michael, how we doing? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.